This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share, and collaborate. Good morning, good morning, or good afternoon, depending on where you are. Today, we're going to be talking about disaster recovery. And, uh, you know, disaster recovery, I've said this multiple multiple times, we do response really well, um, you know, but recovery, for whatever reason, we just seem to not be able to, to get over that hump. And so today, I have uh, Mark Omara, who serves as Haggerty's Director of Recovery, and he's experienced disaster recovery, he's probably one of the most knowledgeable people in the United States um, on the on the area of disaster recovery. So I'm really excited to have uh, Mark here with you. Mark, welcome to Ian Weekly. Great. Thank you for having me, Todd. It's a real uh, pleasure to be here. And I appreciate the opportunity and, and the introduction. And um, while I have been working in this industry for, for over 15 years now, there are very many uh, capable individuals out there. I don't want to steal any of their thunder as well. And, you know, the reality is recovery takes a, a lot of people uh, from a lot of different stakeholders and, um, you know, federal, state, local, et cetera. So uh, it certainly takes uh, more than a village in order to do recovery well. Why does it feel, even if it's not 100% accurate, if I'm going to say it like that, I know there's a lot of great dedicated people in the recovery. As a matter of fact, I, I teach disaster recovery uh as a sole subject um at uh, at the college and but why do we do recovery or why is it so clunky why is it so poorly done when we see disaster response you know obviously it's on tv it's sexy the helicopters are flying around you got lights and sirens going you know people in boats all this kind of stuff and when it comes to recovery hmm, it seems like it's a slow painful process why is that yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right, Todd. It, it can absolutely be very slow and, and very painful. Uh, you know, I wish there was a silver bullet as to why, but the reality is there's a lot of different whys. Um, I will also just say, I mean, look, recovery is hard. It takes a very long time. No two recoveries are ever the same. You have different priorities, different geographic, demographic, um, and, and, and political realities, right? You have uh, different visions of what recovery looks like and what it should be and what it should not be. Um, you know, also a good recovery isn't just returning uh, the community or the individual back to where it was prior to the incident. It's returning them back better, bigger, better, stronger, right? Uh, making them more prepared or more resilient for some future similar incident. Uh, and in order to do all those things, it's, it's a difficult process. Um, you know, I would also say that one of the biggest reasons why recovery is so difficult and or painful, as you put it, um, is because it's, it's a very complex process, right? You have dozens of different federal funding programs, uh, often that do not work well with each other. Uh, there's duplication of benefit concerns. There's issues associated with uh, timeline. You, you often require literally an act of Congress to get certain approvals and, and, and allocations of funding. 
Um, so it's not an easy process. And I think that if there's one thing we can collectively do as a, as a community, emergency management and disaster recovery community, to make the process less painful uh, and, and, and certainly expedite the process, it's reducing that complexity right at every level throughout the process whether it be you know federal laws policies guidance uh, whether it be the the state or the recipient implementation of the fema pa program or the grantee from the hud dr programs um, or at the local level right coming to clear understanding as to what the community wants to do in order to move forward in their recovery uh, but reducing the complexity is certainly the number one thing we can do to help streamline recovery you know, I've gone through a couple of uh, disaster recovery issues, um, you know, over the years. And, and it seems like, you, you know, when when FEMA comes in and starts looking at what we're doing, you know, what we're doing our, our, our projects and whatnot, my, my feeling is, is they come in with the idea of trying to get to no, right, to the answer no. They're not trying to get to the answer yes. They're not trying to help you go through the process to get to a yes. Well, why, why is that? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. First, I want to start by saying I really appreciate all of the hard work that FEMA does throughout the country. I mean, let's be 100% honest. Um, no one could recover without FEMA. And I know a lot of really, really good, strong Americans who work for FEMA that want nothing else but to help people uh, recover from their disasters or their catastrophic incident. Um, and many of the folks that we work with at Haggerty Consulting who, who are on the FEMA side of the house, they're trying to be helpful in every way, shape and form, right? Um, so I, I first want to give credit where credit's due. I mean, FEMA it has a very hard task. They're, they're being asked to do things that quite honestly, they probably shouldn't be responsible for doing, especially when you look at, you know, now with COVID-19 and 59 major disaster declarations for the same incident for the first time ever, unprecedented policies, regulations, funding dollars, over, you know, $5 trillion of funding as a result of COVID, right? So I, I want to set the stage there first by saying FEMA's, FEMA's trying, right? And there are some really good people at FEMA that I don't want to overlook. Uh, and we appreciate everything that they do. Uh, and we work collaboratively with them and, and state stakeholders as well. That being said, I think that the FEMA PA program specifically has become so complex uh, and there's so much policy and so much guidance out there that it's very easy to find contradicting guidance, right? It's very easy to have different, different interpretations at uh, the local level, at the state level, even at FEMA regions. We're seeing you know, FEMA regions across the country interpreting COVID guidance completely differently mm. and then implementing that guidance completely differently as well, right? So it might be eligible for one community or one state, but the exact same expenditure or scope of work might be ineligible for another community or another state. Um, and then I think the other thing is that everybody's scared of audit. Everybody's right. scared of an OIG finding um, that, you know, look, they, they, OIG never comes out and says everything was done perfectly, right? <laughs> and that's not their role. And I'm not saying it should be their role, but there's so much emphasis placed on that, that it's really difficult to, to find a path to yes. And I would say that, you know, finding that path to yes would be, from a FEMA perspective, the single greatest factor to benefit those applicants or those subrecipients 
who have been um, impacted by these disasters, right? Trying to help them get to yes, as opposed to get to no, is gonna make the process more expeditious. It's going to result in a, uh, um, you know, a, a happier applicant, right? Because they're not just constantly fighting. That's the other thing. You look at the appeal process. You know, it might take you 12, 18, 24 months to get through an appeal and or second appeal or arbitration process right now, right? How can you have a successful recovery when you can't even argue your case for two years after the initial determination, right? right? Um, So there's certainly some opportunities for improvement. Um, You know, I think also the other thing that would help significantly is um, empowering the local FEMA authorities, right? The FCOs, the individuals who are on the ground who can make calls based on the specific circumstances of the case being presented in front of them. No recovery is the same as we already spoke about. And there's no reason why we should have a one size fits all approach to disaster recovery. Uh, and what's happening now with these new consolidated resource centers, the CRCs, right? You have individuals who are making policy and eligibility determinations on highly sensitive and highly specific and nuanced realities, um, but they've never stepped foot on the site with mm-hmm. the applicant, never had a single conversation with the applicant, right? Um, never heard the context behind the, the request that's being made in many cases, weren't even in the state or saw the damages from the disaster. Um, And so I think that, you know, returning to that localized structure, which allows um, the the IBDs, the FCOs, et cetera, to have some authority and some autonomy would really benefit applicants in their recovery throughout the country. Absolutely. And I think that's critical too. And, and I, I didn't mean to sound like I was trying to bash FEMA because I'm definitely not. <laughs> That's not where I was going with that question. But I think on the other side of it too is like, um, especially the locals and and you have jurisdictions that do not have professional emergency managers, right? They have people that are there, uh, collateral duty, part time people, That's people right. that that have absolutely no formal training uh, right. at all in emergency management, trying to do this job, and and they don't understand even the, the idea of keeping records prior to the, during the, 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 during the response that can actually help you in the recovery side of things. So again, it's a double, it's, it's double, uh, double, it's sort of, it's a, it's a, you know, double issues here. You got the locals who don't really understand what records need to be kept during, uh, during the response. So when the recovery occurs, uh, it, it makes it easier too. Uh, you know, I, I know yeah. that there's, and also like things like, that you don't understand like policy coming from um, local politicians that um, really impact recovery, such as like deferred maintenance on your building. Right. You know, you, you they go, Oh, we're going to save money by deferring maintenance on it. But when it comes to disaster, FEMA takes a look at that and says, well, of course your roofs leak, you know, you deferred maintenance on it for, for, for the last six years, you know, we're not going to pay for that, that leaky roof now during a storm because you know, you could have fixed it, you know, six months ago or six years ago. Yeah. So uh, there's those issues as well that I think play out. You know, you, you really hit on a lot of very good topics there, Todd. And um, as we discussed, it takes stakeholders at many different levels, right? So we, we spoke briefly about FEMA, but the states or the territories or the tribal governments play a very critical role in the FEMA PA process as well, right? Um, and, and, you know, 
they all handle them some different, very differently. Some states want a very transactional role, right? They want to be able to um, to, to uh, support that uh, uh, recovery reimbursements, right? The, the financial aspects. They want to make sure that the, the quarterly progress reports are completed and and that you know the money um, is accounted for. All those things are very important, right? Uh, some states, however, and the states that I feel have been the most successful with helping their communities recover are the states that really advocate uh, and play a proactive uh, role throughout that FEMA PA process, right? That they help um, be a liaison and, and collaborate between the different partners, FEMA, the local uh, private nonprofit groups, the, the local municipal governments, et cetera. Um, and then you're exactly right at the local level, you, you know, you mentioned that in many cases, the emergency management division might be one person, right? It typically is an individual with a response background, former police, former fire, former military, and they're very good at the response portion, right? right. But there's an entirely different skill set often needed for recovery. It might be engineering or architecture understanding. It might be the ability to uh, develop cost estimates, uh, benefit cost analyses using FEMA software. Um, you know, there's a huge grants management and financial management portion of this as well. Um, so understanding those realities uh, helps you prepare for recovery. Right. So one of the things that we help a lot of our clients with across the country is developing a recovery plan in blue sky days. Right. Pre-incident. Taking a look at what your labor policies say, taking a look at what your insurance policies say, identifying different ways that you can create templates and streamline processes so that if there is some sort of declared uh, disaster, your fire um, agency and your police department, they already know how to record their time in a manner that satisfies the documentation requirements placed upon you by the federal government, regardless of who the, the agency is that, that's providing the funding, right? That's, that's such a struggle, right? I mean, like, I've had this argument with with the, the, the police chief uh, regarding, like, saying, hey, you know, every mile get into practice today of tracking your miles and your times that you use in the vehicles because during a disaster you got to keep tracking that and if the people aren't doing it prior to a disaster when it, i was about to swear when the crap hits the fan and they're not going to to track the uh uh track the miles right yeah, that's uh, absolutely right i mean yeah people um they they work based on uh structure and and um practice Right. And, and it's very important to actually ingrain those good practices. Just for example, on the on the response side, it's obvious that we would do trainings and exercises. Right. But on the recovery side, that's just that's just administrative burden. Why would we go through this process when there's no disaster? Right. right. It's because if you don't do it beforehand, if it's not part of your day to day routine and your day to day process, that you're definitely not going to do it when the, the, the crap hits the fan. Right. Right. Um, when, when when the paperwork is your your least priority because there's there's lives and um, and health and safety on the line. Yeah, I mean, like I I told him just add it to your your to the officers uh, check out of the vehicle, right? If you're checking your sign, you're checking your lights, you're making sure everything's working. Do miles out, right? You know, you know, 
my vehicle says it has 2008 miles on it, you know, miles in. Now my vehicle says 2028 miles. On. It's really easy. It's a very simple thing to do, but it's adding an additional step uh, sometimes like throws people off. Hey, we got to take a quick break, but when we come back. I want to talk a little bit about individual assistance as well. Hey, everybody. Look, I'm excited to be working with, with my friend Sean Griffin over at Disaster Tech. Um, they are the leading decision science platform for risk and resilience. And, and it's the it's data, right? And really keeping track of, of, of data and making decisions based upon great data is very important. So they came up with a program called DICE. And it's a solution that helps your team plan and exercise across government and industry to leverage data and risk intelligence and accelerate evidence-based decision-making. And they ultimately it saves more lives, more money, and more time. And you can follow them at Twitter at Disaster Tech Incorporated or INC, Disaster Tech INC for more updates. Also visit them when they're, if you guys go to IAEM because they're going to be there and I'm sure Sean would love to see you. Speaking of that, IAEM, I'm going to be speaking at IAEM this year. I'm excited about that. And uh, so hopefully if you guys are there, uh, find me, I'll be around. I'd love to say hi. Maybe we stop and uh, we can uh, have a soda or a coffee together, or whatever, and uh, chit chat. And then also going into New York City uh, in November on the uh, 17th and 18th, we're going to be having some great times with the Natural Disaster and Emergency Management Expo. And them, uh, we're going to be right there at the Java Center and in, in, uh, over in New York City's beautifully redone. Um, I really love to see you guys over there as well. And I'm going to be sitting down talking about FEMA. I'm going to be sitting down uh, doing a fireside chat with former uh, administrators, uh, Craig Fugate and Pete Gaynor, and discussing what it is to be at the top, right? To, to be the emergency manager uh, with all the different uh, political stuff that's going on and, and and whatnot that happens when you're there and all the decisions have to be made. And oh, Dan Scott, who can't be here today, said he will be there as well. So you can find Dan and me in New York and uh, Dan will also be at IEM as well. So uh, we'll see both of you guys there. All right, well, that being said, let's bring Mark back into the show. Mark, are you going to be uh, at the IEM? Actually, I don't think so this year. Um, Haggerty Consulting will be represented there. I, I typically uh, do not attend that, that conference, um, but uh, maybe I'll come this, this year just to see you, Todd. <laughs> that would be great. Well, hey, at a minimum, you can go to the NDAM in New York City because I know you're right. And I'm based in New York City. So yeah. absolutely. If, if nothing else, you and I definitely need to, to catch up and, and break some bread. Absolutely. So individual assistance, it's such a such a sticky subject, too, because, I mean, it's a whole different process. And I think people get people, I mean, the, the, the citizens, if you will, um, they get confused when you hear public assistance. They think that's the money going to them and sure. individuals. They don't understand the difference between PA and, and, and individual assistance. IA. What's the process for, for individual assistance and how can communities, how can government agencies, local government agencies help with that process? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, first I'll just caveat the fact that my, you know, my background is certainly in, in public assistance, much more so than IA, but individual assistance or IA is, is a extremely vital part of any community's recovery, right? Um, and, and I would also, before diving in here, just like to commend what the uh, Biden administration has already done to help on the individual assistance side in the aftermath of Hurricane Ida. Um, and FEMA has implemented. For, for example, uh, FEMA has had very, historically, has had very strict uh, requirements for home ownership and residence, a proof of residence documentation, right? In the aftermath of Ida, they've actually expanded 
what is allowable and verifiable to prove that home ownership or proof of residence um, to to uh, expand uh, eligibility and to uh, make the process much less frustrating and not much more expeditious. Um, and that also achieves some of their equity and inclusion goals as well, which is, you know, obviously um, you know, FEMA should be applauded for, for that change. I think there's a lot of changes on top of that or improvements that can also occur. I know that, you know, one of the things that Brock Long, the former FEMA administrator, talks about uh, relative to the IA programs, how many knocks on the door does it take before we get the information we need? Right. right? And, and I think after Harvey, it was something like 16 or 18 knocks, uh, which is just too many. Um, to answer your specific question, I think the private sector um, needs to continue to play a much larger role in disaster recoveries. And the, the different state and lo uh, state, local and federal governments really need to acknowledge that reality. I think 85 percent of infrastructure is actually owned by the private sector. Right. Right? You're talking communications, you're talking water supply and, and uh, wastewater management. You're talking electrical distribution, as we saw in um, in Texas after a winter weather event, URI, right? Um, but yet they're not eligible for a lot of the federal funding mitigation and resilience programs because they're private companies. Um, but they're the ones who are, you know, providing the power and the water to the, the homes and, and um, the communities that are the ones who inevitably require the individual assistance, right. right? So I think that there's certainly a role for the private sector to play. Um, and, and, and hopefully there's some uh, additional prioritization of, of um, public-private partnerships, uh, maybe a reevaluation of how we can provide uh, maybe it's BRIC funding or HMGP funding to allow support for um, infrastructure at a greater scale, right, so that less individual assistance is needed. So as a local emergency manager, you know, going back to that person who, you know, doing part-time, doing collateral, may have come from the, 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 the disasters for the response agencies, you know, what, what can they do to really help that, the, their community with, with individual assistance? Like, is there, can they teach people? I mean, what, what's the first step, I suppose, I'm asking? Yeah, you know, I think communication early and often, right? Pre-incident, um, having people understand where they need to look for information so that they understand, okay, what funding programs may be available? Where do I have to go, whether it be physically or via a website? Um, you know, making sure they understand which Twitter feeds they should be following to make sure that the information they're getting is accurate information and not misinformation, which is um, not only prevalent after a disaster, but is exponentially increasing, right? We have bad actors who are actually, you know, taking advantage yeah. of, of those realities. Um, so I, I think it's communication, 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 uh, and making sure that individuals know where to go uh, to get much needed information, uh, whether that be, you know, here's a site to keep warm. Here's a site to charge your phone. Here's a site that has working, you know, water or shelter um, uh, open. So I think communication is the single largest thing that can help individuals in their time of greatest need. Absolutely. You know, when I was um, working at the local government, um, we worked directly with Chamber of Commerce to create some uh, flyers and information that we can hand out to local and small businesses um, and also to the community members as well uh, regarding preparedness and, and recovery, right? Those two those two things go together. Yeah. Uh, talking about insurances that you should have and things like this is, mm -hmm. is really great because mm -hmm. I think that's one thing that we we miss when it comes to this. I know we 
we talk about disaster preparedness in, in the general, you know, it always gets to the disaster kit. Like, hey, here's my kit, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, but you forget you should have like insurance. You should, you know, understand where your documents are. You know, so helping helping people understand what they need to have with them uh, when they show up to uh, the office for, for, for putting their paperwork through, I think, is, is critical as well. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Like a disaster kit is important, right? Um, but it's much larger than a disaster kit. Um, yeah, I think you, you mentioned insurance. Insurance is, is certainly um, we as a society, right? And then there's certainly some areas that do better than others, but we are underinsured relative to the perils that we face. And those perils are increasing in frequency, uh, in magnitude, in type. You know, 20 years ago, um, after 9-11, uh, the emergency management field was completely different. Right. It's mm. been specialized. Brock Long, a former FEMA administrator, Steve Haggerty, founder and president of Haggerty Consulting, just put out a great thought piece on the state of emergency management 20 years after 9-11. And they talk a lot about these issues. Um, and certainly insurance is one of them. Um, but it's also just the greater understanding of what is emergency management, right? And, and it, 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 we cannot rely on the federal government to play every single role after a disaster, Absolutely. right? It has to be uh, federally supported, but I think, it, again, we have to go back to the private sector and the insurance companies play a major role in this. And, you know, getting to my, my earlier point is, I think, you know, there was 9-11, which is obviously very localized to New York and, and Pennsylvania and DC. And then we have Katrina, which was obviously the, the next largest catastrophic incident, maybe arguably so. Um, but we look at it now and we look at the landscape where every single state, territory and tribal government is under declared incident. Right. Um, nobody's safe, right? Whether right. it's wildfire, inland flooding, hurricanes, uh, cyber attacks, terrorist attacks, et cetera. There's a lot of preparedness that needs to be done at the individual and the community level. You know, speaking of that, I know we, we spoke about this before the show started and, and uh, neither one of us is a, our oil response expert, but yeah. uh, Huntington Beach is dealing, or not just Huntington Beach, Huntington Beach, Newport Beach, Laguna Beach, Orange County. Yeah, yeah, Orange County. Yeah, they're they're dealing with um, the oil spill uh, right now. If you guys have not heard about this, um, there was some sort of incident um, at one of the um, rigs that are out in the ocean. Um, the pipe broke in some way. Uh, they're still speculating how it happened at this point, so I don't I don't want to add to the speculation. But um, regardless, there was a leak, uh, and which has a, s a severe well. I don't know what's severe, but definitely consequential um, economic impact uh, to the communities, right? They, the Newport or Huntington Beach was in the middle of an air show uh, that they had to cancel, which had a lot of economic impact to that. Yeah. Um, you know, how do you recover from something like that? I mean, like, that's just an amazing, uh, you know, we've had oil spills elsewhere, elsewhere but um, especially in a populated area like, uh, like Orange County, California. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the economic impact is always a reality of any recovery, right? Whether you're talking about uh, a hurricane off the Gulf Coast or uh, an oil spill off uh, California, um, it, it's a very difficult thing to recover from because there's no magic bullet, right? Um, in many cases, these catastrophic incidents wipe out all um, revenue for some period of time, the tax base changes, the, um, the, the number of individuals who are available to even work 
um, to provide services. All of those things change. You know, I, I think in, in, in the case of Orange County and, and with this oil spill, um, you know, the, the best uh, defense is a good offense, or maybe it's the opposite. The best offense is a good defense is being diversified, right? Having economic um, stabilization and, and economic uh, revenue sources that aren't going to be um, uniformly impacted by a single incident. Now, that's obviously much easier said than done, but I think that that's why some places um, can really get back on their feet much quicker because they, there isn't just a single factory that blew away in that tornado that provided you know 90 percent of the over, overall economic um, security of that of that um, locality so again much easier said than done obviously a very complex and difficult issue to solve for um, but economic impact continues to be a major look COVID-19 I mean there's in the history uh, of the U.S., I don't think there's been any uh, catastrophic incident or declared uh, disaster that's had a larger economic impact than COVID-19. Um, and, and, and the government is going to great lengths to, to combat that. No, absolutely. You know, it's, it's such, a, such a process. Now, I'm gonna, one last question, because we're getting here close to the end. You mentioned disaster recovery plans, and not every jurisdiction has a disaster recovery plan they sort of have a section maybe an annex in their in their emergency operations plan but why should a disaster recovery plan be separate from their emergency operations plan i'm not i'm not saying that it should or shouldn't to be honest with you i think that in fact it's probably you know a, a piece of a much larger disaster preparedness plan and disaster response plan um, but i do think right now that long-term recovery planning is deprioritized right because number one it's hard it's complex um, number two there's not immediate life health and public safety ramifications right so maybe it's correctly you know secondary on that list um, but what happens is you don't necessarily know that you needed it until there's some sort of catastrophic event and then you're going okay how do i recoup this 150 plus million dollars of of law of uninsured loss right and and what about the 20 million dollars in force account labor that my city or county or um community has incurred that we don't have documentation for right, right? and and that's that can be maybe not equally as catastrophic but the the second um, phase of the disaster. Absolutely. So Aaron Leroy asks a question. He says, Mark, at your time at Haggerty, what's an aha moment from a client that realized that your team's role in their DR plans and thus success? Yeah, there's been a lot of aha moments, to be honest with you. Um, our clients directly attribute an additional $3 billion of federal funding as a direct result of hiring Haggerty right? $3 billion, a lot of money, but it's also not, um, it's not tangible. It's not personal, right? Um, I will tell you that there are multiple instances where I have people, clients have come to me in tears because uh, they were originally uh, worried that this facility or this community, this, this, this municipal government was going to cease to exist because there's no way that they were actually going to be able to, um, to recover. Um, and we've been able to help them through the complex processes, through the uh, complex programs, 
in a strategic and eligible manner to not only rebuild, but to again, rebuild bigger, better, stronger. And, you know, for those of you who don't know me, I'm, I'm an architect by education. Um, I didn't know anything about emergency management or cost recovery uh, before Hurricane Katrina, actually, where I thought, you know, I'm young, I don't have a wife, I don't have kids, I, I'm going to go help. I'm going to use my background and go help. And that's how I got into this, into this environment. And I think that many um, individuals in emergency management or in recovery have similar stories. And that the common thread between all of us is the desire to help people and to help people in their time of often greatest need. And, um, and that for us and for me personally, that's what provides those aha moments is when I'm able to help a single person or a single community or an entire state recover in a more expeditious and um, successful manner. What a great, what a great way to end the show. That's awesome. Hey, so if anybody wants to get a hold of you, how can they find you, Mark? I'm sorry, Todd, I missed that. Oh, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, how can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. My, my email's on uh, uh, the Haggerty Consulting website, mark.omera at haggertyconsulting.com. That's Haggerty with one G. Um, please feel free to contact me for any reason. I'm, I'm happy to help, um, you know, emerging uh, emergency managers who are looking to get into the business, who want advice, uh, individuals who want to bounce an idea or, or get a second opinion. You know, FEMA's telling me this. Is this right? What are you seeing? What are good good lessons learned and, and good practices? Um, so please feel free to reach out. Uh, my door is always open. My phone is always on. Mark, thank you so much for your time today. Yep. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Todd. Absolutely. Hey, everybody, thank you for spending your time and your morning with me today as well. And uh, it's always great having these conversations. Disaster recovery really is uh, one of the areas as emergency management that we really need to be focusing on uh, when it comes to helping our community out. And so at the end of the day, hey, don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast player. And hey, join us on LinkedIn. We have lots of great conversations over there. There's some polls, things like this, and other things that are happening. Uh, John Fontaine is doing a good job. Questions out there for the community. Love to have you part of this community. Until next week, stay safe. Stay hydrated.